together, when we were putting this series together, I was thinking, what, what, is, what are the pictures from the Old Testament of faith, hope, love, and joy? And when it comes to hope, many times we think of hope as something way too distant in the future. What, what is the picture, the story of the Old Testament that brings a picture of hope rippling now? And the most obvious picture from the Old Testament for me about rippling hope, hope that's present and moving now, is the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes from the, the Old Testament. It is a, a place in the, uh, the arc of the historic uh, biblical record in the Old Testament where Israel has been scattered. They have been exiled into Babylon. This is about 5th century before Christ, about 5 centuries before Christ. And what that means is when you're thinking of an exile, a lot of times people think that, that everyone leaves the country. That's, that's not true. Mostly, it's, it's the brain trust of the people. It's primarily the people who are the movers and shakers, the planners, the leaders of that culture. And you remove those leaders and everything falls into to disarray. Nehemiah was one of those. Nehemiah was it really emerged as this you know, amazing thinker, strategic leader, someone who was so competent but also so trusted that King Artaxerxes appointed him to be his cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer is someone who, who stands with the king almost every day, has his ear. And a lot of times you think of just the, the trivial part of his job to, to, to sip the cup before the king drinks it to make sure it's not poison, right? But more than that, Nehemiah is, is a special assistant in a lot of ways. A, a, a brilliant strategic mind in the court of a, of a Babylonian king and queen. And here where you're going to see, we're going to drop into the second chapter. And what you're going to see is a man who has a burning hunger, a burden, a picture of a future he wants to bring to the now and a plan for it. A hunger, a picture, and a plan. From the Word of God, Nehemiah chapter 2, starting with verse 1. In the month of Nisan, which is really a May day, kind of May, 30 days of celebration and feasting. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, 
And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, (laughs) had to throw that in. (laughs) There's the real power, you can see. How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him, given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some months ago, in the middle of the night, right in the stark darkness of the night, I was abruptly awoken by the sound of this. (laughs) Now, you might think it was a tornado, because probably some of you all were awoken by that sound during the tornadoes, but I rolled over, I looked at this Amber Alert, and... It was some, it turned out to be uh, some estranged dad who had come somewhere in a part of Georgia I'd never been, in northeastern Georgia, and, uh, and at about 3 a.m., I needed to know about it. <laughs> now, the thing about it is I'm making light of it for, for purpose because you and I are exposed and subject to so many messages and so many alerts so many alarm bells. I remember uh, maybe just about a year ago when there was a, a, a boy that was, was missing in, northwest, in the northwest somewhere. And I remember hearing all about it and, and you know, the, the normal media frenzy and all of that. And I remember thinking to myself, now what am I, what am I supposed to do about it? Now, that may seem cold and heartless, but there's a point here, and the point is this. If, if we are constantly in this information age, in this communication age, constantly being in touch, everybody in touch with everybody, we can grow numb and callous to the amber alerts around us, to those things that, that we can affect. We can grow numb and callous to those things which need our attention. You see, the new normal that we have is, is to know everything about everybody all the time because we're, we're publishing that information. What we had for breakfast and everything else. And, and we're, always, we're always in touch with each other and so we can't hear in the clutter, in the, in the, in, in the, 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 well, I'm going to say the word that came to mind, and you're going to make fun of me. The cacophony of all of this noise. You can't hear the message. That's your message. 
I have a snapper mower. I'm going to give you an example of the new normal. This is the kind of normal you don't want. I have a snapper mower. You think, whoa, that's a nice mower. Well, I bought it off the side of the road from a guy for a couple hundred dollars because I didn't want to spend two, three thousand dollars on it. But I have spent twice that over the last <laughs> 15 years. And, and one of the things that is chronic about my mower is that in order for, for anyone in my house to, to mow the lawn, we have to inflate two of the tires. And that, that requires two or three people helping with this because you have to get the tire just right to make the seal and then you, somebody else has to pump it up and then somebody else has to quickly pull the thing off the thing and, and it just, it's a mess. That's our normal when it comes to mowing the lawn at the Filston house. It's it, it's not the kind of normal that you want, but those are the kinds of normals that sometimes we settle for. And you know what, what happens is, is that the pain of change is there. You don't want to change. It's painful. So the pain of staying the same has to be trumped by the pain of change. Or actually, let me put it the other way around. The pain of change has to be outstripped by the pain of staying the same. And so you see, we have all these amber, or amber alerts constantly in our ears, and we can't see what needs our attention at the lunch table, at your school, at the dinner table, at the conference table. What, what needs your attention? What, what picture, what, what change can you bring? What influence do you have over the next four years of high school? Or what change, what needs your attention around the dinner table? What, what, what needs your influence in your place of work or in your spheres of influence. This is, this is a picture of a present hope, a ripple effect. Not just some, something that's out there in the distance. Not just a future hope, but a present hope. And it requires a hunger. A hunger. Not, not just that the mower would, would always be the way the mower is. Or not just you know, dismissing all those amber alerts around you. But a hunger for something. Something different. It's the hunger you can see, or the king, King Artaxerxes, saw on the face of Nehemiah. He says to him, This is nothing but the sadness of the heart. It's the month of celebration and feasting, the month of Nisan. Here's a man who has a great job. I mean, a really good job, right? He's trusted, he's influential, he's powerful. But he doesn't have to be in charge of everything. And he's sad. And the king is wondering, what is it? And now this hunger, this, this burden is exposed, and he knows he has, to, he has to be honest with the king. That's why he's afraid. He knows he, he has to, there has to be a ripple effect. He cannot hold on to this. This is the time when, when uh, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel were, were part of, 
uh, of this, the picture here. Or, or as some people, someone once said, Shaq, Rack, and Benny, right? Those guys who danced in, in the flames and those, 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 those risk takers. And this was a risk, but it was a burden. It was a hunger. You see, nothing, nothing is going to be influenced. There's going to be no ripple effect of your, of your hope until you're hungry to see something happen now. Not just to say that your faith and your hope and your love and your joy are all about some place distant, some distant promise. But God puts faith, hope, love, and joy into your life in order to have a present effect. That hunger is like a holy discontent. A holy discontent. Let me... Let me read to you from Isaiah 53, the end of a familiar passage that really describes Jesus and his hunger. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now look back at this passage. A sadness of the heart, an anguish of the soul. You have, each one of you has, a calling on your life. And sometimes it begins with an anguish. And unless, unless you see not just negativity or complaining about the way things are, but unless you let that take hold of your life, take root, and, and realize that this is a holy dissatisfaction with the status quo, then nothing is going to happen. You're just going to think that somehow, somewhere, by osmosis or by happenstance, things are just going to get better. It begins with a hunger. What begins with a hunger? Making a future hope, a living hope. Second, a future hope becomes a living hope when it has a picture. A future hope or a future promise becomes a living hope when it has a picture. It needs a picture. Now, I don't want to pick on John Mayer because I think he's a great songwriter and singer, but let me just uh, read to you a few of his lyrics from one of his, his most catchy songs. Now, we see everything that's going wrong with the world and those who lead it. We just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it. So we keep on waiting, waiting. Waiting on the world to change, right? We're just waiting. <laughs> waiting on the world to... No, Brian is not threatened by that at all, I can tell you. <laughs> Waiting, we're just waiting on the world to change. Now, here's where you have to understand what hope really is. What is the definition of hope? Sometimes we think of hope and we speak of hope like this. We think, ah, I hope that the Braves win the pennant this year. Or I hope, I hope she gets there safely. I hope, I hope this movie is worth the 
you know, the home equity loan I took out to pay for the tickets for the whole family. I hope, I hope. And, and it's this, this sense of uncertainty of things that may or may not happen. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope, or the hope that is the spiritual hope of someone who is walking with Christ, is an assurance, a certainty. You see, that's why Nehemiah has this picture in his head. A picture of, of the way things are and a picture of the way things could be. He says, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. It's a picture of what? Of a preferred future. That's a living hope. A living hope needs a picture. You've got to have a picture. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotations, he says this, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians uh, begin, the, the pic- Christians, who, 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 uh, my quote got messed up here, you'll find that the Christians who made the most difference in this present world are just the ones that thought the most about the next the people who make the most the difference in this present world now are the ones who think most about the next. You've heard the expression, um, you know, people are, are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. On the contrary, on the contrary. The problem is they don't have a picture of how that future hope can become a living hope. The apostles themselves, who set on foot in the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals, who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth. Why? Precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so effective in this one. And then he says this famous line, my favorite line, he says, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Around your table, the lunch table, the dinner table, the conference table, How does your future hope become a picture of a preferred future together? What is the picture? You know what it is. Now, some of you already know. You know exactly what you're being called to, and it it does take courage. It takes moving against the grain sometimes. It takes speaking up, not just to be perpetually negative, but neither just to sit there waiting for the world to change. You need a picture of a preferred future. Finally, this, a future hope becomes a living hope when you have a hunger, when you have a picture, and finally, when you have a plan, a plan, something very practical. What, what is it that, that he was looking for here? He was looking, Nehemiah was looking to King Artaxerxes 
for a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Yeah, he was going to do all that by himself, right? No, he had a plan. And the rest of Nehemiah, and this is to kind of whet your appetite for this great story in the Old Testament. It, it's, it's a little bit like Jethro's advice to Moses. He says, multiply yourself into the lives of people around you, instill in them the burden and the picture that you have. And so what Nehemiah does is he goes from gate to gate to gate all the way around Jerusalem, and they begin to build this wall again. And the people who are at each gate, who live there, they're in charge. He's not trying, he doesn't micromanage all those different gates. He just says, look, you are in charge of it. And he begins to, to, to inspire them and give them a picture of a preferred future and handing over responsibility and involving people, getting people plugged in. Why? Because they need to build this wall. Why is it to keep people out? It's not just about security. It's about identity. You see, a secure city, the secured city of Jerusalem, the capital of Judea is a picture of a present community being reborn, rebuilt to represent what God is doing here and now in this time and place. How are you involved in what God is already doing in this time and place? At your lunch table, around the dinner table, around the conference table. How are you plugging in to this place? Do you have not only this place to worship, but do you have a place to grow? And do you have a place where you're serving? See, until you have a place where you're getting transparent with, with a smaller group of trusted friends, what, what, what I'm saying on Sunday mornings you can download the app a hundred times and listen to them all over again. It's not going to make any difference to you until you begin to sow these seeds of what, what God is saying through the scriptures into your life where they need to be. See, they don't get into the soil where they need to be until you have somebody across the table who can reflect back at you where you are and where you aren't. Somebody who builds trust with you and, and you can begin to reveal to them your true heart and what you really think and what you really feel. A place to grow. And until you begin to plug in to what God is, is about here in a common way, this common community, this common project that we have here, you're not going to have any sense of ownership about it. You're not really going to care about it. Do you have a place where you can, can serve? You see... Uh, even before there was this thing called the 80-20 rule, you've heard of the 80-20 rule, it's called the Pareto principle, right? 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work, right? And, and, and a lot of times churches are a, a real picture of the Pareto principle. Nehemiah understood that. Nehemiah understood that, that he needed to be able to not only have a hunger and to engender that hunger into the people around him, he needed to not only have a, 
a, a, a picture, but he needed to have a plan to involve people. And so that's why I, I want to tell you something this morning about our plans for the future here. We have formed a vision team. And this vision team is doing, mostly right now what they're doing is, is they're, they're calling upon people to pray for them. And, and over the next few months, these, these, these people who represent all of us are going to be looking at First Presbyterian Church with an eye to the future, to be able to bring more of what we hope we're going to be in five years into a plan for the now. And so in the fall, we're going to be rolling out some specific steps for each one of us to take to have a place to worship and grow and serve. And, and while all of the things that we do here, and there are many, many things that we do here, are, are, are wonderful and important, we're going to be trying to, to clarify, we're going to try to clarify for each one of us what is the main thing? What, what are the, the main steps or what is the pathway through all of these great things? One of the, one of the books that we're reading is called Simple Church. And, uh, and, and Harry T. Jones, um, he pulled out a, a pull quote from, from that book. And uh, it's a quotation from an artist. And he said... If, if you want the necessary to stand out, then you need to, to set aside some of the unnecessary. In the fall, we're going to be trying to help, we're going to try to help each one of us understand what is necessary to follow Christ, to be a part of what he's doing. And so you see, here's a man, Nehemiah, who had a hunger, not a negativity, but in anguish, a sadness. And it's a sadness that you can see in the heart of Christ when he sees people living far from him. Does that kind of thought that there are people around you, around the, the lunch table, the dinner table, or the conference table, does it bring up to you an anguish that there are people around you living far from God? Or people who need a touch, a care of care from you. People who need your leadership and influence. People who need to have a sense of your deep conviction and picture of a preferred future. People who need to understand, how is it that I do follow Christ? How is it that I do grow from year to year, from day to day? Does it give you a sense of hunger and burden? Can you see can you begin to see, as I've been speaking today about Nehemiah and about this place, can you see a picture, a little bit of a picture, that in five years we're still going to be here? What are we going to be like? What are you going to be like? What's your family going to be like? What's your life pattern going to be like? Are you still going to be going around the same cul-de-sac, dealing with the same issues with the same people? Or are you going to embrace a plan to capture this picture of a preferred future for today. At your lunch table, over the next few years, students, moms, dads, sons, daughters, around the dinner table, what's your responsibility? 
to bring a present hope and not just wait on the world to change. Around the conference table, what is your responsibility with fear and trepidation to take some risks? Let's pray together. Holy God, how we thank you that you took the greatest risk. And what a reward. We stand here today in worship and celebration and thanksgiving of what you're already doing in our lives. Father, help us as we, as we seek to follow you, not to be fuzzy about that, but to be clear that you've called this future hope to be confident, a confident, present assurance of things to come. In Jesus' name, amen. God sent His Son They called Him Jesus He came to love He'll and forgive He bled and died to buy my pardon an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives let's stand together because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Be Cause I know He holds the future And life is worth the living Just because He lives And then one day I'll cross that river I'll fight life's final War with pain And then as death 
gives way to victory. Come on. I'll see the light of glory and I'll know He reigns because He lives I can face tomorrow because He lives all fear is gone because I know He holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives and life is worth the living just because he lives may god go with you today behind you to encourage you beside you to befriend you within you to give you peace and before you to show you the way now and forever amen